Shabbat Shalom. This is Rabbi Talmud Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing commentary on Padishah number 26. This is Shmini 8th, found in Vayikra or Leviticus 9.1 through 11.47. If you have questions or comments after you've heard this podcast, please visit us on our website at rabdavis.org. Click the Ask the Rabbi link and I'll be happy to entertain your questions or comments. Today we're going to take a look at the dietary laws. And some people may already be of the opinion they understand all there is to know about these very important laws that Yeshua followed and taught. However, there is always something new to be learned for those who have not closed their minds to new information, as long as it's consistent with God's Torah. Holiness and separation as God's people extends to what they eat, as well as thoughts and behaviors. In addressing animals of the land type, they had to chew the cud and have a divided hoof so that the hoof was split. Animals that chew the cud are not carnivorous, but eat vegetation. And this is a significant distinction. Think for a moment about some of the animals eaten in the Pacific Northwest, such as bears, wolves, beavers, otters, and seals. Although some of these cultures have eaten these animals and used them for uh, basic items uh, for life for centuries, none of them fit God's criteria for permitted land or sea animals. The hoof had to be completely split, and this rule eliminated the option of lions, bears, and dogs who have a membrane that unites the claws. These animals are generally carnivorous. Considering marine life, only animals that have fins and scales are permitted. Again, this eliminates seals, otters, turtles, and whales. And this law was necessary because many of the tribes lived near a body of water, such as the Mediterranean, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and other tributary streams. Concerning birds, every clean bird was fair game. To make it easier to know which birds can be eaten, the Torah eliminates those considered unclean. The fowls listed as unclean are also carnivores. It was and is also forbidden to eat birds that eat other creatures, or fed on dead flesh, or had unclean practices such as vultures, eagles, and seagulls, to name a few. There are some insects that are also permitted, although the choice is quite limited. Permitted insects are those that were winged, walked on four legs, and had jointed legs above their feet, enabling them to hop. So these permitted insects were limited to some types of locusts, crickets, beetles, and grasshoppers. All other insects were and are unclean. Reptiles and worms are also forbidden for food. Insects that move on all four legs, those with many feet or those that move on their bellies are also forbidden. God in his mercy also clarified situations where there might be doubt. Some things would include those animals that chew the cud but don't have a completely split hoof or the other way around. And animals in this category include the camel and the pig. The purpose of the dietary laws includes the fact that meat that is fit for human consumption comes from animals that do not eat meat. And the main reason for the dietary law is theological. We've already discussed that life and blood are synonymous, and that to consume blood is considered a heinous practice. The blood of any animal represents its life. So an Israelite then and now does not eat a creature that ate bloody prey. There was high regard for life not easily found in our society today. God expects man to respect the life of other life, and this figured into what was to be considered clean, when it related to its holiness. 
Dietary laws were developed to include the way clean animals were to be killed or eaten. That was what was considered kosher. And these rules are generally followed today by the Orthodox Jewish communities, who hire a specially trained individual in the art of killing and inspecting a clean animal before it's prepared for human consumption. The animal had its juggler vein cut, and the blood of the animal is drained. Before the meat is processed, it's inspected for any disease or condition that would render it unfit for consumption. The process of killing the animal is most humane as well. Typically, the animal is led around slowly until the individual who will kill it uses the knife twice as long as the neck of the animal is wide. With one swift cut, the animal is killed, causing no pain and preventing the release of toxins into the tissue. There are even laws that forbid stopping and starting the cut. It must be made in an uninterrupted motion until the trachea and esophagus are severed. The knife cannot be stabbed into the animal, and the esophagus and trachea cannot be torn in the process. This humane way of killing animals is very different from the way they're killed in the United States, where they're herded into small spaces which frightens them, causing toxins to be released into their bodies before they're killed. There are generally three steps to killing an animal for consumption in the United States that I'm going to discuss simply because it has an effect on the health of the individual who eats meat prepared this way and the discomfort and pain the animal may endure during this process. Pre-slaughter is the first step and this process is done to hopefully reduce the stress of the animal. Different groups of animals are mixed together. They're ventilated to keep them cool and kept in low numbers to prevent overcrowding. The animals are supposed to have access to water but no food for 12 to 24 hours to assure complete bleeding and to make removal of the internal organs easier. Then comes stunning. The animals are restrained in a chute that restricts their movement. They're then stunned to supposedly prevent pain and stress which is meant to increase the quality of the meat. The stunning process can be carried out in various ways such as mechanical, electrical, or through the use of carbon dioxide gas. And this renders the animal unconscious, but exactly how unconscious uh, one cannot say. Mechanical stunning involves firing a bolt through the animal's skull using a gun or a pneumatic pistol. Next comes the slaughter. After stunning the animal, it's usually suspended by a hind leg and moved down a conveyor for the slaughter process. It's bled out by inserting a knife into the thoracic cavity and cutting the juggler vein. From this point, the process varies by species. By learning the differences in the process of animal slaughter between Judaism and other cultures or religions, we can better appreciate the detail with which God explicates the slaughter of animals, both for temple sacrifices and for human consumption. If we're to be a holy people, we must also follow the dietary laws and prepare the food taken from live creatures in a holy way, just as Yahweh Yeshua did and does. Another important purpose for distinguishing between what is clean and unclean concerns the hygienic and sanitary issue. Many forms of life do not prey on other animals, but because of the eating and living habits of the animal, they're rendered unkosher. One example is a lobster. If lobsters are not killed properly, the meat can become contaminated. Now shellfish by nature are unclean because they filter toxins from the water and store them in their bodies. And these toxins can become harmful to those eating them. This information comes 
from the National Center for Biotechnology Information is just one of the sources I used in my research. Regardless of the reasons presented for not eating unclean food, serving God and remaining a holy people included then as it does today, doing what is best for our bodies, allowing us to serve Him at our best. It makes no sense for Christian clergy to teach that humans can eat whatever they want under the freedom of Christ when eating forbidden foods are detrimental to human health. Would such behavior be sanctioned by a God who wants the best for his people? This is a completely illogical train of thought by the Christian clergy. Our Haftarah is out of 2 Samuel. And this Haftarah provides us another example of the seriousness of modifying our worship of God. King David decides to transport the ark on a new cart. It's as if he thought a new cart, which can be uh, compared to a foreign fire, would be an acceptable way to transport it. However, God made it very clear how the ark was to be transported, on the shoulders of a man, not beasts, or in a cart. We read in Exodus 25, 13-15, quote, Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark. You will use them to carry the ark. The poles are to remain in the ark. They are not to be removed from it, unquote. David violated this protocol, and it cost Uzzah his life when he tried to study it on the cart. Now, for the new Torah student, or for those who disregard the Old Testament with the original constitution of God, it would seem unreasonable for God to kill a man for what seems such an innocent action. The same could be said for Nadav and Avihu. However, when we come to the truth of God's Torah, this specifically instructs us on everything from worshiping Yeshua, Yahweh Yeshua, God, to not picking up dead lizards, we'd best pay attention and engrave, quote, These words which I have commanded you this day be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you retire, and when you arise. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hand and let them be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates, unquote. This is from Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. And it applies today, by the way. David was very well aware of this instruction and the protocol for transporting the ark. This is the reason he became frightened of Adonai and did not bring the ark to Jerusalem for three months. Instead, the ark was taken to the house of Oved Edom, where God blessed him and his entire household. So who was this Oved Edom, and why would David trust him to keep the ark? Well, if you look at the meaning of his name, it means servant of Edom. He was considered a native of Gathrimon, thus the designation Gittite. He was actually a Levite of the family of the Korites. He had taken up residence in Judah, perhaps a convert to Judaism, and the worship of God through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David had many followers from the Gittites. And for more information, look up Gittites for yourself. This may explain why the ark was taken to Obed-Edom's house for three months and merited God's blessing over him and his entire household. Now our brick Kaddishah, out of the refreshed, renewed covenant, called New Testament by Christians. This is out of 2 Corinthians 6.14. This passage reminds us of the stark differences between true believers and unbelievers, clean and unclean epitomized by Abraham and Lot. Quote, Do not yoke yourselves together in a team with unbelievers. For how can righteousness and lawlessness be partners? 
What fellowship does light have with darkness? What harmony can there be between the Messiah and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement can there be between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will house myself in them, and I will walk among you. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, Adonai says, go out from their midst, separate yourselves. Don't even touch what is unclean. Then I myself will receive you. In fact, I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, unquote. It's important to understand that the word son in Hebrew has several meanings. It does not always mean a biological son. So I submit in this passage, sons and daughters takes on the alternative meaning of disciples. The directions are clear, and we don't have the liberty to modify them in any way. So says the Torah. Even at the end in the book of Revelation, we are not to add to or subtract from the words of this book. This passage may sound easy to follow, but anyone who's in the process of ascending to God is in the process of learning how involved this process of separating ourselves becomes as we grow. Oh, it might be easy to forgo bacon or not, but it's required. Then we learn of the tithe. It's required. Then we learn that not working on Shabbat is not an option. We're to rest for 24 whole hours and not think about what we're going to do tomorrow, what we did yesterday, or watch our clocks so we can start a project at the moment of sunset. Then we realize our relationship with our families and friends must change. It's required. What about potential companions or spouses? They must take second place to our obedience to God's Torah. Out of Matthew 10 and Luke 12, it says, quote, But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Don't suppose I have come to bring peace to the land. It is not peace I have come to bring, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, so that a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Whoever loves his father and mother more than he loves me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than he loves me is not worthy of me." Unquote. Our God is a jealous God who demands allegiance to him only. That's in Exodus 20. Think back about the story of Abraham and Lot. Is not Lot, or can he not be compared in some ways to the pig? He seemed kosher on the outside as he initialed follow Abraham. The Hebrew translation of the story portrays Lot as a person who initially revered Abraham as a great teacher and mentor. But as time passed, Lot lost all respect for Abraham through familiarity and greed. Remember the account in Genesis 13:8 through 11, where Abraham, ever the hospitable one, offered Lot the choice of land. Lot in his greed perceived the whole plain of the yard in that was well watered everywhere. Now as the younger of the two, and out of respect for Abraham, he should have insisted that Abraham choose first, or believing the plain of the yard and to be the choicest land, choose to go in the other directions. But Lot was greedy. He ended up in an idolatrous city of a Sodom and Amorah, and was so filled with greed and inhospitable people that God destroyed it. Lucky for Lot, God allowed him to live anyway. This illustrates the emphasis on the pig as the epitome of uncleanliness in the eyes of God. Just as a pig looks kosher from the outside with a split hoof, Lot belonged to the family of Abraham initially chose to leave his home and follow Abraham, making him appear righteous and clean. However, like the pig who does not chew the cud, which makes it unclean on the inside, 
Lot was filled with greed and compromise. It was for Abraham's righteousness that God physically separated Lot from Sodom and Amorah before destroying them. That's in Genesis 19.29. You know, we all have a choice. And I pray that we choose the path that will lead us to eternal life with Yahweh Yeshua. No matter the perceived hardships, including social isolation, isolation from our families, or even martyrdom endured for his glory. And it can be done by learning and living God's Torah, his instructions. This is the will of God, that the world will know that, quote, I am Adonai, unquote. And that came out of Ezekiel 35.15, 26.38, 37.28, and 38.23. Amin. Shabbat Shalom.